Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Democracy is a popular topic among scholars of politics in Southeast Asia. Liberalism is not, or at least it hadn't been up until the last few years, which have seen a spate of books with liberalism in the title on Islam in Indonesia, capitalism in Singapore, post-colonialism in the Philippines, and now, with them, liberalism and democracy in Myanmar which is the title of a new book published by Oxford University Press in 2018. With me to discuss liberalism and democracy in Myanmar are the book's authors, Roman David and Ian Holliday. Roman is professor and head of the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at Lingnan University in Hong Kong, and Ian is a vice president, teaching and learning at the University of Hong Kong. They will be speaking with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow in the College of Asia and the Pacific Australian National University and co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Roman Ian, congratulations on the new book and thank you very much for coming on to the show to talk about it. Well, thank you for your invite. Yes, thank you very much. Roman, Ian, these are on the whole not good times for liberal democracy. In contrast to the celebratory mood of the 1990s when Fukuyama promised the end of history with the inevitable rise of liberal democracy almost everywhere. Now we seem to be at the end of the end of history. It's no longer the case that liberalism but populism is the word on everyone's lips. So against this trend, why write a book on liberalism and democracy? And more precisely, why ask about the prospects of liberal democracy in Myanmar? We see uh, liberalism and democracy, or say liberal democracy in general, as a superior political system. It is a system which, let's put it bluntly, put less people into concentration camps. It is a system uh, which allows uh, bad government to be dismissed in elections. Uh, it is a system which doesn't imprison uh, critics of the government. So in general, no matter what the trend uh, is uh, globally, whether we are at the end of the end of history, I'm not sure. But uh, uh, the fact that currently the pendulum uh, grows towards uh, authoritarian and uh, liberal uh, systems doesn't mean that uh, the concept of liberal democracy as a preferred political system has been discredited. 
So um, for this reason, uh, we ask uh, about uh, the prospect of liberal democracy in Myanmar because uh, we essentially would wish uh, that people in Myanmar live in an environment which is free and in which uh, they can control their own government. This is kind of a minimum baseline, which is uh, essentially a normative, uh, kind of a minimum normative uh, framework for that, uh, for that book. It sounds then that what you're saying is that liberalism is for you not only a convenient category for analysis, but in fact that you are also advocating for liberalism as a preferred kind of a political system. Is that correct? Um, we don't really uh, advocate uh, in, in our book anything. Yeah. This is a certain normative background against which uh, certain processes uh, are evaluated processes which are political or social nature or legal or historical nature in Myanmar. And based on uh, comparative research, uh, we try to, uh, based on existing uh, research, we try to figure out uh, if we uh, observe something, what is probable what is the probability to uh, achieve certain certain objectives? And the objectives are not really normative uh, per se, but uh, obviously, yeah, we are very much concerned about uh, democracy vis-à-vis -vis military rule. We are much concerned about tolerance vis-à-vis -vis intolerance, uh, justice vis-à-vis -vis injustice. So in this sense, uh, um, our book has certain normative component, but it is much more analytical in its instrumental purpose in our book than uh, in a kind of a theoretical um, uh, notion of, of uh, you know, democracy, something that we would be advocating. We are not advocating. And so why Myanmar specifically? Well, this is a country which uh, has embarked on a very important transition um, from authoritarianism to democracy. We have been observing uh, Myanmar for several years before. The transition opened, uh, you know, kind of a lot of hope and, and possibilities that um, the misery of the authoritarian uh, period, which was marked by, you know, economic bankruptcy, uh, essentially, whether it was socialistic or crony capitalism, which uh, evolved later on, that uh, brought certain hope that, uh, that uh, living standards and, uh, and, and freedom in a country can, uh, can improve. Maybe, Nick, I could just supplement um, Roman's, Roman's answer by mentioning that we've been working together on Myanmar for 15 or 20 years, first by writing academic papers and more recently with the book. Now, what brought us together around Myanmar is that I've got a long-standing interest in the country. Roman has a, a long-standing interest in transitions to democracy and transitional justice, in other issues like lustration systems that are related to transitions. And so meeting from time to time, talking casually about what we were working on, what interesting issues there were out there, Myanmar obviously came into focus in our conversations because here was a country that was actually now straddling both of our interests. It was a country that was making a transition. I wouldn't necessarily want to say a transition to democracy because that's obviously very contested in Myanmar studies, but it was certainly making a transition away from a very rigid form of authoritarianism to something that was more democratic and more liberal. And that was why this idea of looking at the prospects for liberal democracy in Myanmar came into, into focus for us. It was almost a natural extension of conversations we'd had earlier. We'd, we'd written about how 
Myanmar might make a transition. We we looked at the conditions whereby the junta in say the mid 2000s might be persuaded to make some moves towards a more liberal, more democratic system. And now it was happening right in front of our eyes. And so that was really the trigger for us to come together and say, this, this merits something more substantial, more than just another academic paper. We would actually like to put down our thoughts on this in, in book form. So how did you make a decision to research and write the book? And how did you go about doing it? I mean, first up, we applied for some research funding. And we were generously supported by uh, the Hong Kong GRF scheme. And that, that was great. It's, it's an exploratory study. I mean, we, we didn't start with a hypothesis. We started with a, a, a frame of mind where we wanted to explore what was happening in Myanmar. We, we already knew that the 2010 election had taken place. That was one of the core themes, was this was a society that was loosening up. We also already knew that by 2012, there was ethnic and racial tension in, in Rakhine State, and that in 2013, it was starting to spread to other parts of the country. So that was another major theme that was pointing in a completely different direction towards more intolerance in Myanmar rather than more tolerance. You know, obviously, toler toleration is, is, is strongly associated with liberalism. And so there, in a sense, we had the two major axes of our exploration. We had, if you like, a, a feel-good story about the changes and, and the new freedoms being experienced by Myanmar people, particularly under the Thein Sein administration in the early 2010s. But we also had a less feel-good story about rising intolerance in the core of the society. And I would say looking back on the 2010s, there are many, many, many strands to Myanmar politics in the 2010s, but those are still the two outstanding uh, narrative lines that dominate the decade. And that was what we wanted to explore. If I may still uh, add uh, a little bit non-academic uh, angle on my interest in, in Myanmar as a Czech citizen, I was aware of that link between Havel and Aung San Suu Kyi. And uh, I was very much inspired by uh, Václav Havel. And so the type of uh, leadership uh, which Aung San Suu Kyi represented in, in opposition to the military regime was very inspirational. So that was one of the reasons why uh, I developed that kind of interest in, 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 in the country. Although I'm not a country specialist, I don't claim it, but a certain passion for for that country comes from this angle. Although you didn't begin with a hypothesis, Ian said a moment ago, at a certain point you start to develop an argument and that ends up being a core feature of the book. What is the basic argument of the book and how do you go about prosecuting it? We didn't start writing the book uh, uh, that uh, we knew what was good for the country. We wanted to be more exploratory, as uh, Ian mentioned. But of course, we developed certain concept out of the book, uh, the concept of limited liberalism. We can talk about it a little bit later. This could be our contribution to knowledge based on this exploration. Maybe I could add that in, in guiding our ex exploration, we were obviously drew on other literature. We looked very much at comparative analyses of transitions to democracy. And 
we framed our exploration, and I think we knew this from the start, from a series of perspectives. We wanted to look at the the balance of liberalism and illiberalism in a number of domains. And it's that tension that we were exploring in in every one of these perspectives. Um, our, Our book's not speculative, but it is looking at trajectory, the trajectory of this particular transition, and whether it is likely to move to a consolidated liberal democracy or not. We are interested in that question. And so we looked at the balance of liberalism versus illiberalism in a number of domains and from a number of perspectives. We looked historically at the legacies that were coming down to Myanmar in the 2010s from its colonial history, from its post-colonial history, from the the half century of authoritarianism from 62 to 2011. We wanted to see the balance of liberalism and illiberalism in, in that sense and try to kind of map how determinant history might be in guiding this transition, in shaping this transition. We looked at the constitution and to some extent the structure of the state. We looked at political actors and the positions that they were staking out. And that's not just elected politicians in Napidor or even in the regional assemblies, the territorial assemblies, but also street actors. And then we also wanted to look beyond politics and look at neighborhood effects. So we wanted to look at just levels of tolerance and trust held by people at the level of their neighborhood. When, when, they, when they scanned the street on which they lived or looked at the people with whom they worked or from whom they bought their groceries, we wanted to understand the levels of tolerance that were being expressed at within those interactions and those lived circumstances to give us another insight into liberalism versus uh, illiberalism at a, at a very grassroots level. And then we also wanted to look to the past and, and, and in fact, look at how the society is dealing with the past and whether it's dealing with it at all. And you know, and we know that transitional justice is often a theme that is raised in the context of transition. But in the Myanmar context, it's not a very present a strand of debate. And so we were interested in looking at that too and the extent to which transitional justice might become a, a key theme of this transition or might not. Let's come back to transitional justice in the second half of the discussion and for now cover some of the other dimensions of the transition that you looked at. There are quite a number of them that you just listed there, In Perhaps we can draw out from among them some of those that Going into the research, you had certain expectations as to what you would observe, as to what the data you generated would reveal, and that, in fact, your expectations were confirmed. Could you give us some examples of those? We really didn't have that many expectations about um, our our findings or etc. Et the reason is that Actually, we were among the first ones who were doing, um, maybe we were the first ones who were doing political survey in the country, which was still at the time under uh, the military rule. We were asking questions which uh, have been considered quite sensitive, questions about accountability of the military for human rights violations. We uh, couldn't say based on uh, existing research, you know, um, our expectations uh, were this and that. 
So maybe I can try and come at the question another way, and that's to say that well, you, so you conducted surveys, uh, some of them, and and conducted interviews, some of them in the central parts of the country, and some of them in uh, ethnically ascribed states along the periphery of the country, and also you conducted the research over two periods: one, the first round of data generation in 2014 under the government of Thein that Ian, I think you mentioned a moment ago, and the second in 2017 under the NLD government. So what interesting data did you generate that spoke to both to continuities and discontinuities between one period and the next, and also between one part of the country and the next? Okay, so um, geographically, you know, if we compare the three ethnic states with the uh, which we were doing the survey in, Kachin, Karin, and Shan, and with the region of Mandalay and Yangon, we observe, uh, you know, certain differences and, and commonalities. So, for example, uh, in common to all these uh, regions and states is intolerance uh, towards the Rohingyas. Uh, however, uh, what is interesting is that uh, although the intolerance is significant in all, all these uh, parts, the level of intolerance is much lower in in ethnic states. The second thing which I would say is the um, the desire for for democracy uh, is is uh, again it was large in in all parts uh, of of the country, but slightly uh, more pronounced in in those in those ethnic states. So there were some uh, um, some differences. And these differences uh, very often were significant. If we put, uh, we speak about st- statistical significance, but in general, um, they they uh, uh, operate in the same direction. So when there was a intolerance, so there was a degree of intensity of, of uh, intolerance and uh, support for democracy. There was a de- uh, difference in the degree of of support in terms of time line. Uh, what we observe is that uh, stagnation of, of, of liberal attitudes, that the number of people whom we would call liberals was not increasing over the period of time, um, but the uh, number of people who manifested illiberal attitude uh, actually was increasing. Maybe I could add, I, I said that one of our perspectives, the neighborhood grassroots issues and looking at toler- tolerance there, and looking at liberal and illiberal attitudes there. When we looked at the data from 2014, we we were able to plot three clear orbits around the core identity in Myanmar, which is Burma Buddhist. If you take that as the core identity, and then you ask Burma Buddhists whether, for instance, they would like or dislike to live on the same street as, and then you give them a series of categories. Some of those categories are named official ethnic minorities, Some of them are named official religious groups. Some of them are foreign nationals. When we ask those kinds of questions, we we found three orbits of identity, if you like, or three orbits of kind of social groupings around that core identity of Burma Buddhists. Very, very close to the Burma Buddhists, they would be very happy to live on the same street as the official ethnic minorities. There's almost no worries about doing that. Then when we looked at a second orbit of identity around that core identity, 
The next one was Christians, Hindu, Chinese, and Indian. Quite distant, in fact, from the official ethnic minorities, which were very much part of the family as far as Burma Buddhists were concerned. And then at the absolute outer limits of the uh, the far, furthest orbit away from that core identity were Muslims, Bangladeshi, and Rohingya. Now, two things to say about that. One is that when we came back in 2017 and again looked at the data, we found there'd been an intensification. So Burma Buddhists were even more comfortable living with official ethnic minorities on the same street, but less comfortable living with the two other orbits of Christian, Hindu, Chinese, Indian at a kind of middle ranking, and then Muslim, Bangladeshi, Rohingya at the outer limits, so that the social mapping had intensified over that three-year period. The other thing is that when we asked those same questions of the official ethnic minorities, they gave us the same answers. Basically, I mean, as Roman said, not quite so intolerant, but basically very happy to live on the street, same street as Burma Buddhists, not so happy to live on the same street as Christian, Hindu, Chinese, Indian, and not happy at all to live on the same street as Muslim, Bangladeshi, Rohingya. The perilous situation that Rohingya in particular, but also Muslims uh, are in now in Myanmar, is very much revealed by our data. So it's the point that limited tolerance works outwards through a certain number of concentric circles, but then beyond a certain point. Tolerance, and more precisely, uh, liberalism then ceases to apply, and hence this category of limited liberalism. I suppose what I'm asking is, um, in a roundabout way, is to then speak back to the category of limited liberalism now out of that observation and how the data you generated informs the category that you've constructed. Yeah, this is a um, question which is um, which, which was puzzling, you know, in uh, looking at the data and, and uh, uh, trying to understand them and spending some quality time with, uh, with the data. And the more and more time uh, spent with the data, the more kind of a paradoxes started to emerge. So, for example, um, the support for uh, democracy, at the same time, there's a support for military rule uh, among 20 to 30% of the population. There are also uh, things related to, to, to gender, you know, the, the, the statement that uh, men make better leaders is uh, approved by 52% of, uh, of females. So um, we observe a lot of those type of, of contradictions. You know, the second wave of surveys which we did, uh, uh, the third one uh, confirmed that there are contradictions and uh, this is not some kind of a coincidence. So we uh, kind of inductively, uh, based on these observations, call these uh, contradictions uh, limited liberalism. Uh, and by this we mean set of inconsistent beliefs in the tenets of liberalism. This concept, which is some kind of a hybrid category, could help us to understand the political culture of hybrid regimes. We are talking very often about uh, you know, semi-democratic regimes, about liberal autocracies or illiberal democracies, but we are not that much interested in understanding uh, the, the political culture of, of these uh, regimes. And uh, by putting forward this concept of limited liberalism, we have instruments in the, uh, which allow us to, to grasp uh, political culture. 
And why limited liberalism? Why not, for instance, a contradicted liberalism, as, as you were speaking to contradictions a moment ago? Or why not semi-liberalism, a term which is already current in the literature? It's definitely semi-liberalism would not be uh, appropriate to, to characterize because it, it suggests something like a half-baked. This is not what we mean by, by limited liberalism. It is not some kind of a middle category between liberal and illiberal attitudes. It is a category or, or features uh, um, which manifest liberal, clearly liberal attitudes and clearly illiberal attitudes. I mean, this is the most important thing is to highlight the notion of contradiction in opinions. Therefore, semi-liberalism would uh, not be accurate. I was uh, suggesting calling it something like a paraliberalism, perhaps. But then we went to, uh, Ian said that paraliberalism doesn't sound that uh, nice and uh, we get settled to limited liberalism, which was actually the original idea of having it as a limited liberalism. Maybe I could just illustrate. So a, a limited liberal is typically somebody who, if you ask them a question of principle, For instance, do you support the idea of ethnic and religious equality? They would say, say yes to that. But then when you ask them a question about whether, say, Muslims or the Rohingya should have equal rights with everybody else, they say no. So that is a direct contradiction in the, at the level of principle. They, they believe in something that they don't then believe in at the level of practice. Likewise, I mean, to take another Myanmar example from the middle of the, from the late Thane Sein period, do you believe in the principle of interfaith marriage, that people should be able to marry across faith lines? In principle, yes. But I don't believe that Muslim men should be able to marry Buddhist women without, say, the permission of the state. So that is another instance of limited liberalism for us. And does your category help you to explain why that's the case, say, in those specific instances? Or is it rather that it enables us to identify those contradictions, but it doesn't offer us an explanation as to why, for instance, that person holds uh, to a principle that's then contradicted in its specifics when you refer to particular categories of people? It's more the latter. And I mean, we don't think this is just a Myanmar phenomenon. We think this is a global phenomenon, that all societies will have liberals, illiberals, and in a triangular relationship with them, limited liberals. As Roman said, this is not a, a, a linear spectrum where liberals and illiberals are the two poles and somewhere floating in the middle are limited liberals. Instead, it's a triangular relationship. But None of our research speaks to why it would be that uh, any individuals in Myanmar would have these limited liberal attitudes. Roman Ian, we're also in a triangular relationship. Uh, we'll, we'll give this relationship a pause for a moment so that our listeners can take a brief break for a sponsor's message. And when we come back, we'll see if we can bring some of your research and thinking in the book to Myanmar in its current pre-general election conditions in a time of pandemic, no less. 
New books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we are in conversation with Roman David and Ian Holliday about their liberalism and democracy in Myanmar. Roman, Ian, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the research methods that you adopted, the survey and interview data that you've generated. And one of the questions that comes to my mind is whether or not in doing research of this sort on a political category like liberalism in a post-colonial setting, that's to say a setting where previously there was a European colonizer that worked with this idea of liberalism, whether or not you need to go about doing the research, adopting different methods or, or thinking about your inquiry in different ways to how you might say in Europe or in a settler colony like Australia, for instance? You, you do need to be very conscious of the, the historical legacy, which is you know, something that you yourself, like both Roman and particularly me, given that I'm British and given that the colonizer was, was British, uh, that you embody. So you do have to be very, very conscious of that. I, I would say that the category of liberalism that that we've been talking about a lot in, in the in the context of this conversation is a category that is very resonant in contemporary Myanmar. I mean, certainly since 1988, when uh, democracy, of course, was a big slogan in 1988. But coming out of it, Aung San Suu Kyi, and you yourself make this point in a very generous review of our book, Aung San Suu Kyi focused in her writings when she became a global icon of democracy, not only through the Sakharov Prize, but also above all through the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 and had a platform uh, on which she could address the whole world from her house arrest in Myanmar, in Yangon. Um, She chose to focus on liberalism. She not only made that uh, a category that she floated very much with her domestic audience, but also with a global audience. It's in Freedom from Fear. It's in Please Use Your Liberty to Promote Ours. It's in her absolute reliance on the rule of law as fundamental to political reform in Myanmar. So for the entire 1990s and 2000s, she was speaking the language of liberalism and making it central to her political pitch, both to her own compatriots and to the wider world. And her own compatriots reflected it back to her. It wasn't as if she was getting pushback from the Myanmar people saying, well, what's all this liberalism? Isn't that an outdated colonial concept um, and we need to move on to something else. I mean, that, that was, of course, part of the theme in Burma immediately post-independence when the only game in town was some form of socialism or communism. And there was really no market in the market of ideas. There was no market for liberalism at all. You had to be somewhere on the socialist communist spectrum to be a player in, in Burmese politics in the mid to late 1940s and right the way through the 1950s and, and even in the 1960s. And you know, the military coup is cast in socialist terms, reflecting, again, the dominance of that strand of, of political thought. But by the, 19, the late 1980s and then into the 90s and 2000s, all of that's gone. 
even the junta abandons it in 1988. The structure of the state survives and, 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 and military dominance of the state survives. But what's lost in 1988 and what they discard is the whole articulation and orientation towards socialism. Aung San Suu Kyi reflects that on the political side by talking the language of, of liberalism there. So it's not as if we were picking a concept from a clear blue sky and bringing it to Myanmar kind of unheralded. This, this is something that had been absolutely live in, in local debate for a full two, two and a half decades by the time we started working on it and, and, and trying to probe it and explore it in that context. And, and, and just if I could supplement on, on how we did that, we've, we've talked a lot about the surveys. We also did 88 in-depth interviews, all of which were conducted for us by a research assistant, Kain Lin Thu. Uh, she was an undergraduate student at Hong Kong U. She got first class honors here. She went to LSE, wrote a prize winning dissertation in a master's program, then returned to Myanmar. We worked very closely with Lin in setting up our research. We did the initial interviews together so that all of us were in the room talking with some of our respondents. And once we were confident that we were all on the same page and that the team of the three of us were absolutely thinking in the same way about how to prosecute this research and, and implement it, then we left her to do the rest of the interview. So it was very much a, a local Myanmar discussion between Lin and our respondents uh, that took place from then on in. And so I, I think also that helped to minimize the extent of kind of aliens landing in Myanmar. We're trailing a research agenda that's been designed elsewhere and isn't really applicable to the country. I, th I think none of that is true in this case. Let's move, if we can, from the, the, the general category of liberalism back to some of the specific elements or, or features of it that you identify in Myanmar and that you're interested to, to talk through in the book. We've spoken quite a lot about tolerance or toleration. Another category in the book which is quite important to your discussion is that of trust. And that category is striking to me in our current moment here in the middle of 2020, in the time of the novel coronavirus, when a lot of the public health experts insist, and social scientists as well, insist that trust is essential for good health outcomes. Moving from that observation, can you speak to some of your findings about trust in Myanmar? What does it mean to talk about trust in Myanmar? Trust for whom? And in general terms, what did your uh, reading of your, your data from the work that you did in the mid-2000s, what does that suggest to us about how well-placed the country is to deal with a situation like the current crisis generated by the global pandemic? I mean, the category of trust itself is very um, elusive. I think we need to acknowledge this uh, um, important fact. If I give you an example from, from other countries, two contrary examples. For example, uh, one situation in Greenfield Towers in London or sewer disaster in, in Korea, uh, people trusted emergency services who taught them uh, to stay put. And... Uh, that trust uh, essentially cost them their lives. Uh, on the other hand, we have situation in uh, many countries where people do not trust vaccination programs and 
pay their lives for this or their children as well. So uh, there are obviously costs for total trust and for total mistrust uh, for for populations. And I understand that there, you know there needs to be a degree of trust uh, in government to to operate because we cannot be always suspicious that government is doing something nefarious uh, in any measure uh, when they try to, for example, vaccinate people. You know, or ask them to need uh, emergency procedures. But this in itself is a very complicated, uh, complicated concept, and um, I would not really that uh, uh, much get to that uh, kind of a conclusion that uh, countries which with a higher trust were doing better. We have also countries which had low trust in government, uh, not to mention East European countries, uh, and they were doing all well. Uh, Hong Kong government uh, has a very low trust, and uh, they were doing also well. You know dealing with the pandemic. So if we have certain findings that, uh, uh, about trust. We found that, the, uh, let's say, when the, NL, the government started with NLD, that there's a trust in, in government. It increased dramatically from the situation uh, when it was started by the USDP. But uh, um, we also observed that uh, you know, uh, the trust is pretty much personalized, that Aung San Suu Kyi has, uh, you know, is the, you know, has the highest level of trust. And that uh, Buddhist monks uh, have also very high level of trust. One of the contradictory elements in limited liberalism that you described in the first half of the discussion was that on the one hand, there's a relatively high level of expression of support for democracy. On the other hand, still the military also obtains a relatively high level of support. Is that an example of where the military has the trust of a certain percentage of the population that under some conditions it will act in ways that they would consider overall will be in their interests? Is that the reason that we see that contradiction? Again, it's not unique to Myanmar to find that in a context of democracy or democratic transition, there are people who uh, support authoritarian solutions to politics. It's, it's quite common, as we know, in, in, in even stable democracies, consolidated democracies, to find, say, 20 or 30% of the population who favor more authoritarian solutions. But what we're focusing on, obviously, in the Myanmar case, is that category of limited liberals who say that they are in favor of democracy, but also in favor of the military playing a role in in politics. And yes, that's one of our concerns about looking at these trajectories, the trajectory that Myanmar is on, is that there's a hybrid regime in Myanmar where uh, in the executive, there are military ministers, in the legislature, there are 25% military appointees and also in all the regional assemblies, you know, all the way through the state, we find that there's the protected domain for military interests. And what we find in our data is that that hybrid regime is gaining acceptance in Myanmar. So that, as as Roman said earlier, there's a trend in our data away from liberalism and towards illiberal and limited liberal commitments on the part of the people. And that is a long-term concern for consolidation of liberal democracy or any form of democracy in Myanmar. Just uh, on the kind of a comparative note, uh, um, we look at uh, um, the support for uh, 
democracy and military rule in several countries, which were part of the World Value Surveys uh, of 2014 wave, we found very, what was very striking is that this uh, um, lack of association, of negative association between uh, support for democracy and support for military rule, this is a global phenomenon. So on the country level, there is no obvious negative correlation. So we would expect that in many countries, we would have a greater support for democracy and lower support for military rule or other way around. But there is no such a, such a correlation. And only if when we um, look at the individual level, all these tens of thousands of respondents in this, in this survey, there is a very weak negative correlation. And this is a, uh, something which is, uh, which is important to, to, to mention. So a question that I have following on from what you've both just said concerns the topic of transitional justice. The book contains a chapter on transitional justice, and both of you have worked on the topic in the past. Presently, there's very little discussion in Myanmar on transitional justice. And the question I have is whether that is um, because the trajectory that we see presently is one of increasingly limited liberalism and therefore it's prohibitive of that kind of debate or whether there might be other reasons that transitional justice hasn't taken up more of the public agenda than it has presently. Transitional justice or some kind of a set of measures which normally countries devise in order to deal with uh, legacies of human rights violation didn't really take place in Myanmar. Uh, we only observe that political prisoners have been released, but uh, we also need to understand that uh, um, while the NLD is uh, not really preoccupied with this topic at this stage, this doesn't mean that this topic will not be uh, pronounced later on in, in, in future. Uh, this is my kind of a um, believe or based on understanding from other countries where there was a certain suppression of this type of uh, um, political, uh, politically sensitive debates in transition, but they eventually came to life later. Now, one of those uh, reasons, one of those mechanisms how this could uh, be is through uh, certain revelatory procedures. In uh, uh, our survey, we also we didn't only ask questions about transitional justice, whether uh, a military junta should be held accountable or uh, whether property should be returned. We also asked questions uh, through uh, survey experiments. So we just try to manipulate certain real-life situation and try to manipulate through these uh, four measures of transitional justice, reparatory, retributive, revelatory, and reconciliatory. And we found that uh, revelatory measures were the most uh, pronounced. So people seek to document abusive past, you know, try to reveal uh, human rights violation at its scales. They put a lot of emphasis on this, uh, on this aspect. So I could imagine that uh, there might be certain push for, for documentation, if not for establishment of something like a truth commission or certain 
museums or certain archives are opening, etc., which would bring more attention through this type of uh, truth-seeking mechanisms, more attention to the injustice. Are you working together on something now or have you gone your separate ways as researchers and authors? We are working on a fourth wave of survey we are planning to conduct this summer. So uh, our project is not finished. And in fact, we have been already discussing, you know, how we are going to write another book with uh, different, different concepts, but concepts which would allow us to also use uh, our existing data and so the readers can have uh, you know perspective which is uh, more kind of longitudinal on the one hand but broader the theoretical uh, apparatus to other concepts uh, beyond those which we have which is uh, a tolerance transitional justice uh, democratization and constitutional system so uh, liberalism and democracy and Myanmar volume two or is it uh, liberalism and democracy and dot 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 we haven't got to this type of details <laughs> uh, but i suppose it would be pretty much informed again by by our findings ian do you have anything to add before we close i mean as, as raymond said this is an ongoing project for us our fourth wave is is a little bit dependent upon covid we'll do at least a fifth wave before we sit down to write everything up and, and maybe even a sixth wave. So, you know, by then we will have very rich data. Uh, as Roman said, it's not just going to be an update of what we've already written. We will also be looking at some additional issues. We'll be looking at social media. Since we first formulated our, our survey instrument in 2013, when really even Facebook was not on the horizon for Myanmar, but of course now it's a absolutely dominant platform inside the country. So that is something that we'll be looking at. We'll also be looking at other issues which were not so so critical back in 2013. Rohingya repatriation is, is a, a critical issue now, and that is something also that we'll be looking at. So alongside turning what was a five-year study into a 10-year study and looking across that decade of trends, we'll also be inserting some some new issues and some new concerns into the analysis. Well, I had in mind a counterfactual question to close with along the lines of, well, if you were writing this book now, what would you do differently? But it turns out you are, in fact, in a sense, writing this book now, and that's the next book that we can look that's forward true. to. yes, yes. <laughs> New and improved in so many ways. So I'm just going to have to hold off until until that book's published and then get you back on for another discussion. But in the meantime, Roman, David and Ian Holiday, thank you very much for joining me to discuss the book that is published already, Liberalism and Democracy in Myanmar. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having us. And thanks to everyone for listening. If there's an author or indeed authors that you'd like to hear talk about the new book on Southeast Asia, then why not let me or one of my co-hosts, Patrick Jory and Faiza Zakaria, know. Write to any of us via the email addresses provided on the website. Just click on the About tab on the right-hand bar of the channel page, which you can reach from the drop-down menu under People and Places. 